Welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people and real stories. A local podcast for local artists. everyone welcome back to afternoon delight with myself jordy delight what an interesting week i have had i um really didn't anticipate the week i was gonna have um in all honesty we did our musical show for the house of liability last night which was absolutely incredible um it it's it's been an interesting one and there's some stuff going on personally that's bad and there's some stuff that's going on personally that's really good, but I don't want to jinx any of it. So I'm just going to say I have braved and pushed on, and I'm so thankful that I've managed to. And my next guest is so similar to myself in so many ways. They are absolutely an Aquarius, which is so interesting, like myself. They are really incredible. I've been working with them on something really special that I can't tell you all about just yet but I've been working with them on it and we've been creating some magic together. And it felt only right once the piece was filmed and finished that we would get them on Afternoon Delight because they are an absolute delight. They are a director, an activist, an artist. They are from Edinburgh, like myself. They went to Hollywood High School, which is very interesting as I know many people that were my friends that went to Hollywood as well didn't know they were from Edinburgh. They are based in London just now. They were going to be the co-artistic director of the Travers. However, they are just going to working freelance now for the Travers, as well as various organisations like the National Fair of Scotland, the Royal Court. Let me tell you, when Debbie mentions my special interests, it's like you can hear the conversation go a total tangent. I love when people have the same special interests as me. That's such an important discussion. And I'm going to let them tell you the rest. It's the incredible, um, I think, mentor for me at the moment, especially actually in the arts, um, friend and colleague, that is Debbie Hannon. Oh, a Sunday special and treat for all of you. Um, how about we just pretend we don't know each other, Debbie? <laughs> how can we do that? How can we do that? Hi, Dordy. How are you? Nice to meet you. <laughs> Lovely to meet you too. I can't believe that after months of extensive research and messing repeatedly, I have finally managed to meet <laughs> Debbie Hannon. Debbie. Um, yeah, I mean, this is why I'm not an actor, that <laughs> I am in fact a director. <laughs> but it's a, it's a thrill to be on here with you. I'm so excited to have you here. And the thing is, like, I won't get in drag for many of my guests, but I definitely will for the lovely Debbie Hannon because we have been, you know, a lot's been going on behind the scenes. We've been working, creating stuff together with me and Drag and Out of Drag, which is a new experience for me. We've been cooking something up, haven't we? You had to go through the whole transformation multiple times. Yeah, and I'm really, and the funny thing is actually about this piece, and I won't go too much into it, but me um, in drag is more like myself and me out of drag is completely transparent and nothing to do with me at all, which I like. <laughs> That was, that was the real performance, wasn't it? <laughs> that was real drag. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Totally here for that. So, Debbie, I have obviously known about your work before we ended up working together, which was such an incredible email to get with 
saying that you were quite interested. And I thought to myself, I know them. Oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> uh, so for listeners who maybe don't know you, could you please introduce yourself? Of course, my name's Debbie and I'm a theatre director. I'm from Edinburgh, um, like yourself. And, but I've been living in London for the past eight years. I've directed mostly new writing, new pieces, uh, but that can come from like a script or just an idea that someone's had. But I've directed all over, all over the world, actually. Uh, Mexico, I've been to India, um, America, Australia. I've directed all over the UK and places like the Royal Court, the Young Vic, the National Theatre, most proudly National Theatre of Scotland, um, and the Tron and the Citizens. So yeah, I've racked up a lot of credits in my time and my work is always really colourful. Um, it's always like amplifying a story that needs to be heard, um, influenced by music videos as well as politics in equal measure. So yeah. That's me. Since why we were matched then. <laughs> yes, we were, we were, we clicked immediately because of all of that, I think. It was really joyful. And Zodiacs. Yeah, I mean, double Aquarius, you know. Two Aquarius, as I asked you, I was like, what is your star sign? You're like, Aquarius, I went, same, I can see this. I can make yeah. this thing. <laughs> Causing the revolutions together. It has to be done. So even like me, you've got an Earth Moon as well, haven't you? You're a Moon in Capricorn, yep. and I'm a Moon in Taurus. Like, it just, it was yep. a that wasn't for disaster quite clearly mm-hmm. excited by that so yes so um it's interesting you mentioned there that you're from Edinburgh like me and when you told me that when we were working together I actually was a bit like oh I actually thought maybe you were from like London so chat me through you know where did you grow up study work live before you pursued directing in the arts so I grew up near near Craig Miller um like where the ERI is, where the hospital is. That's kind of where I grew up. So just down from Craig Miller Castle um, and lived, there, oh God, lived there forever. Probably till I was like 21 because I, yeah, I went to like Holyrood High School, like a very nice, like kind of quite strict, but nice Catholic school that had an incredible drama department. Mm. Um, and then went to uni, went to Edinburgh Uni because I, I was like the first one in my family to go to uni. So I didn't really know that part of that was that you like went somewhere else. So you could get pissed all the time. Like I was like, I don't really know what this is and I'm good at English. And I had a really encouraging teacher, you know, like big up state school education because it was a massive influence on me. Um, so I went to uni in Edinburgh as well and took such a long time at Edinburgh Uni to find my feet because it's quite a it's quite a classist at that time um complicated place I suddenly was amongst like the upper middle upper and upper classes of England mm. who couldn't understand my accent in my hometown um so it was quite a like complicated place to go but I found my feet in the theatre group there called Paradox started to make shows got into hosting burlesque nights cabaret um I was on that scene a lot um, for years and from there kind of found my feet in directing because at first I wanted to do film but it's quite inaccessible in theatre you can have you know like an empty room and some people and you can make it go um, and film you seem to need like this resource that I didn't know where other people were getting it from which it turns out in my later years it's their parents <laughs> um, but the, the theatre world is a bit more welcoming um, to all sorts and all types. And, and yeah, from there, I then got, uh, I worked mad hours on uh, a box office, worked at like different cinemas and I got a scholarship to the Royal Conservatory of Scotland to do the Emmy in directing. And it changed my life. Like it set me on a path. It took me to the Globe Theatre in London. It 
it put me on my first new play development with the amazing writer Pamela Carter we took a show to London and I was like oh yeah this is it like this is what I want to do I loved working with writers and I love working with actors um and that yeah that put me on my path I didn't know anything about theatre up then I grew up in Edinburgh like yourself so you know every year there's a fringe mm. but when you're a local your fringe experience is a different thing from like when I became a theatre person um and you go and see those kind of shows like when I was a local kid you know I was like maybe we'd see a magic show and get and be really happy that the pubs were open till five you know (laughs) Um, but like that changes you know like as a theatre professional it's a different thing so it's interesting to like be, be, a, be a local to Edinburgh and experience the festival from all of its avenues and understand it mm. in that way. But yeah, that's kind of it. Really, really, um, yeah, lucky to have been in a school that had a brilliant teacher. That's what I'm going to say. That's how I got from there to here. Right. Let's talk about this. So my friend was at Portobello High School. Yeah. And she did higher drama with Miss Todd would have been the teacher at the time. But she um, wanted to advance higher and they weren't teaching it. So the Portobello kids went to Holyrood. And I want to know, is it this, was it the same? She's now retired if it is. But was it the same teacher that taught you? Uh, yeah, Mrs. Patterson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she also taught like Kieran Hurley. And like, you know, I know she's probably, she's got a significant kind of impact on Scottish arts, I think. And... And like, you know, it was just what I loved about Holyrood, which, you know, I fucking hated school. But like what was brilliant about Holyrood was that it covered a catchment area of all types of people. So there was people there from a lot of money and people there from not a lot of money. And it covered all those humans together. So you had a really mixed experience. Like, I can't think of anything worse than sending my kid to private school and having them only know other kids that have money. Like that to me is breeding ignorance in the opera. Whereas in Holyrood, you had like the state, you had a state school education with a teacher who would back you. And it was her that like, was basically like, you should be directing because I was obsessed with like the whole picture of the stage, how to make it more dramatic, how to make a feeling or an atmosphere or a moment happen. And she was like, that's the director's brain. And I would not have known that was a job without that woman, you know? Yeah, because I had the exact same experience as you with two teachers at um, high school at Leaf Academy. And Leaf, it was so similar to Hollywood, actually, that you had a lot of people. So, like, the colony houses at Leaf Lanks, Lock End, quite nice sort of areas in Leaf. But then you've got Lock End, where I actually grew up for a lot of my life, which can be very sort of council. Mm -hmm. quite like that, because at Leaf, you didn't actually know what kind of people you were going to get. And... Um, I think it's so interesting because I think that dynamic often as an artist for me has made me actually better at communicating to all kinds of people because I've met artists who clearly have came from a middle-class background. Mm. Like I experienced this when I went to Edinburgh Uni and I went to the art school. That people that, because this is so outside of their box, their ignorance isn't actually their fault a lot of the time. Yeah. My experience. And I've kind of sat and went, oh, this is what I've done. And they go, oh, wait, your family aren't artists? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, no, my mum is a carer. My brother is a carer. Yeah. I'm the only artist in the family. But why? And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, like, but the amount, the amount of times, Debbie, I understand completely what you're saying about the elitism that can happen in places like Edinburgh Uni um, and these sort of situations, I totally can actually empathise and understand that. The thing mm. with me was my English teacher had said to me, I was going to, so in my sixth year, I was Swithering, right? I had three mm. options. I was going to do English, 
was going to do drama or I was going to do psychology. Okay. <laughs> I was like, which one shall I do? Right? <laughs> and it was my psychology teacher was very open and honest. He was a great guy, but he had turned around to me and said, I feel like psychology would be quite difficult for you at uni. I think you'd find it really um, triggering. And I kind of went, excuse me. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I kind of went, that's really rude. I can't believe you'd say that. Ugh. Yeah. And then my drama teacher, I said to her, I might go and do like, you know, drama and become a drama teacher like you. And she went, you don't want to do that. And I went, what? She went, you need to either be a writer or performer or even just something, but I don't think you want to be a drama teacher. Trust me. I went, oh, I think you're wrong. I'm going to go, Marshall. I don't think so. And my English teacher, um, when I said to her, I was going to do English at Edinburgh, was like, well, it's up to you. If I were you, I'd be out there trying to create work. And I went, okay. Mm. Actually, my English teacher I listened to because I'd got an offer from, I think, the English and the drama courses I'd applied for. And I mm. think my friends were telling me I was nuts because I got conditional for Edinburgh Uni to go to do English. And they were like, you're nuts, say no test, I'm going to QMU. And I kind of went yeah, but I just want to go and have fun, right? And yeah. My mum had said to me, because I was going to study either Edinburgh or QMU for my first degree, she'd said to me, just stay at home. You don't have to pay to like- Yeah, same. But money, I thought, right, cool, I'll do that. So when right. everyone was in halls, forking out loans, you know, doing all that sort of stuff, which was totally fine. I was at home, but doing all that stuff because I was literally 25 minutes on the bus away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, same, exact same, where like you're- Everyone else, like I, there was folk in my year who'd been bought a flat in Edinburgh, you know, yeah, at like the age of whatever, 19 that they were. And I was busting it in from home. But, you know, degrees are free here, right? Your first degree. So, like, I left with no debt. And that was like a massive value in our family, which I think is a working class thing where it's like you do not get into debt. You know what I mean? Thanks. So, right? That is literally the working class, like, Mm -hmm. actually yeah that my mum said you know save up your money because I was working mm -hmm. in retail in part time as a DJ in first year uni and I just I remember I moved it in third year I took a student loan so I could move into halls um for one year and I did that because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to DJ and work in retail and I quit all my jobs and I'd said to everyone they were like you're nuts why are you moving to halls in third year and I turned around and went because it's my last year I actually have to go in <laughs> yeah 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 I need to try it <laughs> I need to have the option that if I walked to a bed I could walk in because it's on campus yeah 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 literally if I I'd go into lectures in my pajamas yeah yeah and, I love it and if they're like why are you wearing your pajamas I'd be like this isn't my pajamas this is my clothes <laughs> <laughs> that's really you're, you're such a creative though that you did like that was the right thing for you I feel like it, you had to be in a creative course the thing is I was actually but the thing is I was because obviously a lot of my friends stayed for the honors year yeah and I had in my I was like I'm gonna direct my first show I'm gonna do this midsummers but it's club kids in the 90s and let's fucking go for it and did it and got told they didn't understand what club kids were so it wasn't gonna get any oh my god and I went what? google it watch party monster <laughs> well we did we made them watch it there was parts of party monster language and script in it and everything wow I get it. And I went, oh. and I went, you got to find your people. You got to find your people. That's a good test if they don't fucking get that. <laughs> and then it was like, I did my community ed uh, module and mm. I'm thinking youth fear at this point for SYT in Strangetown. Yeah. And they gave me a D. That's wild. But that is the disconnect, isn't it? Between like the institutions and the real life, which 
it happens all the time it happens I see it I go into drama schools and I direct and you can feel the difference where there's a, a school that like I work a lot at Royal Welsh and Royal Scottish and they really embrace like connecting to the industry and then when you go into other schools where that's less prominent you it's just yeah I mean pointless you know like you feel the difference in the students so accurate and it's just for me it's always been that thing of like and now because after years Debbie didn't see mm. I studied at QMU and I just didn't yeah. know and it was because of my negative experience but when obviously National Theatre stuff that I've been developing recently and mm-hmm. on a webinar for them last night on trans and non-binary joy in the arts and I was like oh my god me of all people because at, at uni I would not have been the one that lecturers would have been like they're gonna go and do this mm lecturer who had turned around to me and was like you don't need to do fourth year you need to go out and work yeah really her name's Kate Nelson incredible woman and I went all right and she went you need to be out there doing it this isn't for you and I went all right so I I followed her advice the one bit of advice and look at me now and you are do you know what I mean like I now say yeah we're at you and the reason I do that and I've talked about this in the podcast in season two and one so it's nice I'm talking about season three with you as well that what I've done for young students is I've always said some, it doesn't really matter where you go. If you want to do this, you can do this. And that's 100%. why I came you because I don't be able to think, oh, well, if you go drama school, you'll make it. And if you don't, you don't. It's like, no, no, I went to art school and people kind of go, mm-hmm. hey, talk me through that. And I'm like, not for me. <laughs> no, and like, I went to like the fancy English lit Edinburgh uni, like, and I was like really good at it. You know what I mean? I got like good, great, didn't, didn't get me, didn't make me a better director. Didn't get me into a rehearsal room. Like, totally. So it was the stuff outside the room that did, you know? So on that topic then, you know, in terms of directing, what is it that gets you going and what what is it about directing you enjoy? And what kind of got you into directing? I know we've talked about a bit, but I'd like want to hear that sort of what it is about directing you love and and you stride with. I think because I'm always an audience member at heart like I it's the moments where I watch something and I'm like oh my god my my imagination this the size of my imagination has been expanded I've been shifted I've felt seen or I've felt like I've learned mm. or uh, you know my my heart's been opened and my experience of the world is bigger for this moment and I'm always going back to those moments and wanting to make sure that more people get them um so it really comes from my love of being an audience member um and how I just want to know the craft of building a moment like that. And I think the beautiful thing about theatre is the whole palette of the world is yours. You know, like light and sound and humanity and love and hate and conflict and space are your palette, which is just astounding. Like the very act of being in a room with someone is the thing that you're dealing with. Um, I always talk about like your medium is time. Like you, the thing you've got is time with someone else. That's your fucking paint, you know? And that that's the thing that gets me really excited because then you form experiences for people to have. And then those experiences trigger shifts in people. And, and I think sometimes we talk about theatre in a weird, weird way where we're like, can theatre change the world? And, you know, like sort of these questions that I just think aren't even relevant in a way because, what, I mean, theatre isn't policy and, and it shouldn't try to be, but it is empathy and it is people and it is how, how are we choosing to gather together and what questions are we asking about that? And that's the kind of theatre that gets me excited alongside a really fucking good night out. Like I want that feeling at 2 a.m. when there's been the drama all night I've been to a gig I've been to a club um I've had a really deep and meaningful that I've never had before with someone you know that all that stuff is like the rich sort of like fruit of you know life that you want to have the feeling of when you when you leave a theater show um and I just love the life form there's nothing especially now after a year of not 
that stuff. Um, I think we've got to hold it precious, you know. Mm. It's so interesting because I remember one of the things I told you when I first met you months ago in Zoom and we were chatting through who I was, what I did, and you wanted to get to know me. And I said, oh, well, I've, I've been swithering on two things here right now. Um, and one of the things I have, I've been writing is this shielding show. Yeah. Sort of my experience of the 12 weeks of shielding when the pandemic first started. And last night I talked about it because I was, you know, probed for um, what sort of trans and non-binary joy meant for me. And I was like, right, leather and away. And I said to them, they were like, what do you feel um, in terms of relationships? It was an audience member had asked, I'm writing a character who is trans um, and non-binary and I want them to find love, but how do I go about it? Because I'm not trans and non-binary. And and, and we kind of both got, it was me that gave answers. And I kind of said, well, I'll be honest with you. I was like, in my experience as someone that's non-binary and a drag queen, and they're like, right, I was like, I was going out with someone and I'm writing the show about it during the, shield, the shielding process. And they're like, right, I went, where the guy was contacting me and hemmed in me and wanted me to get back with him. And I had about 11 of them literally all contacting me in the space of 12 weeks. And, she, and they were like, really? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went, and the thing is that I will say that um, there's a lot of angst, you know, look at your... Yeah development there's angst there's secretism there's a lot of um fear of judgment and I, I said you know for years I was a fearful avoidant relationships that anytime things got difficult I ran away and yeah yeah thank you for sharing this now I instantly went I should not have shared this I was so yeah <laughs> but you know I had the loveliest feedback from them from mm. who emailed me like incredible that was so lovely to share your personal thing and I thought right and I'm now at a point where I've came through my trauma that I will talk about my personal life in practice whereas before mm. I watch it on stage go and deal with it whereas now I'm like no no let's have a discussion about this and where mm. I this from um so I totally understand what you mean about sort of that whole composition of something that the night out you missed that conversation with random you don't know you know I I love in my work when someone sees something I do and it probes the conversation. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. And there should be like, you know, the works that, the, the plays that I've come out of and been like shook by is because on several levels it's prompted me and it's probed me and it's, it's not let me just lie. It's not let the status quo continue. And I think that that, I also just love like trans and non-binary joy, you know, like that, even even that is like, wait, point, point, that, point to that on stage, point to that in a film, like that's not, that's not there yet. Like I think theater and arts people can become cynical that everything's been done under the sun and it just hasn't been like that. It's no wonder you got such good feedback because that's like, come on, this is a fresh area. Like how are we going to do this, you know? My last thing I'll add before we get back onto you and your work and how amazing you are was, you know, I am like you, very political, and my work is mm. live. You know, I'm not the kind of person that, I don't know, I think there was two Tory jokes in the recent thing I've done. It's a whole... <laughs> anti-Tory yeah. in the honeymoon period and in the Wasted Youth, there was also political Tory issues. You know, I've, I'm a political um, artist, but one of the things that were discussed was sort of where do we go from here when things mm. change? And I kind of went, I won't get too socio-political, but I, <laughs> I think that we've come so far with shows like Pose and all these sort of representation, and Adam was a great example of representation. Mm. But... Um, I would like to just talk about the fact that I just done Galatea with the show must go online where 70% of the cast were non-binary or trans. And that was incredible. The same, wow. a well-known popular musical has cast a cis man as a trans woman. I know. And you could kind of hear the sort of tumbleweed of that oh, awkward, like, and I kind of went, and all I'll say is, isn't that interesting that in the same space of 24 hours, I've got two experiences 
yeah. can say is it's 2021. We need to start changing things. The last 14 months didn't just vanish. Yeah, yeah. And like that all, all the sort of the, the only way to make this time have any fucking point to it is to learn from it and to move forward with all of that shit and not just bounce back to something worse, which yeah. your example is a very good version <laughs> example of to note that um it doesn't need to go that way we can it's the thing with all the changes in the industry that i've ever backed and ever been part of and ever wanted to be part of is that it is just do it like just do it like i did a show called little miss burden um which i'm really proud of and it's by matilda abini who's a phenomenal playwright and it's her biographical story about growing up nigerian british in hackney and her disability and how it showed up through her life and she's got a degenerative condition and so it shifted as she got older. Um, and so we cast it, this amazing actress called Saida Ahmed, who was the lead and she's a wheelchair user. And, you know, it threw up so many new questions to the venue, to the designer, because I wanted, I wanted Saida to go into that space and that space, everything in that space to be hers. Because I really believe in the social model of disability where it's like, you're not the problem how everything is around you is you know mm. and I and I think sometimes this is another thing that prompts my work and I think you're quite similar like I'm like the stage space can like dream the future like can like Taylor Mackle says dream the culture forward like make an offer for the better thing you know so we made this space where Saida could go anywhere in her wheelchair like she was not the one having to compromise you know, the space bent to her. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know what? There was obstacles along the way, like the discussion with the venue had to shift. We had to work a different version of rehearsals and like what the budget meant and, you know, blah, 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 like lots of stuff. We still did it because we wanted to do it. And it's the will to do it. Once you've got the will, you absolutely can relentlessly find the way. And it's the same with the thing you just talked about. It's the same with casting, like, if you want to do it, you'll find a way and we have to want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, we need to fucking find out why. What is underneath that, you know? I want my Oprah moment. Yeah. Stage <laughs> space can dream the future. Yeah, what, what else is it doing? I'm, I can look outside if I want to see what's happening now. I want to see what could be, you know? That needs to be a quote from you on a wall. So <laughs> that needs to be in your book when you write a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can be the future, that's beautiful, can dream the future, amazing. So you have said you have got so many credits, I, I'd be lying if I could say I remember them off the top of my head because there's so many that are incredible. Talk me through the highlights of your career so far up until this point. Wow, I mean, I think probably, uh, so I was trainee director at the Royal Court. Um, I, think I, got, I think I got that job when I was 24, maybe 25, and I was like, that was incredible because suddenly I'd always wanted to go to London. I'd read about the Royal Court. I'd read Sarah Kane's plays. And then suddenly I was, you know, invited to come down. And I'd just come off this year of horror, like a breakup, a death in the family. My parents had split up. Like it was, it was, I know, it was an iconic year of awfulness. And then suddenly I was on my way to London and there was this fire under me. Um, so that was a highlight because it was proof to me that I had all the potential and capability that I hoped for. And from there, I think probably lots of highlights like I directed in Mex a play in Mexico in Spanish. It was the biggest challenge ever because it's in a language I didn't speak back then. No one gave a shit who I was. <laughs> I was just, you know, some Scottish like person that had showed up. And so every all your bullshit was stripped away and I just had to make a brilliant bit of art. Um, 
I did a year-long project with a school called Mulberry School in East London, these amazing feminist Muslim women who are alumni of the school. To spend a year with those women was one of the biggest privileges I've ever had. We did a collaborative show that we all wrote together. And yeah, I still, I think, you know, to the day I, to the day I die, I will hold that dear. And then probably Panopticon because I got my first job at National Theatre of Scotland as an assistant to Vicky Featherston and John Tiffany. And then 10 years later, or just over, I came back to direct a main stage show with them. And it's an adaptation of a novel uh, by Jenny Fagan, who is a Leather, a Leith writer, mm. um, an absolute icon like of Scottish literature. Um, and I got to adapt that and bring that to the stage. And it felt like I'd come full circle back round to being where I'd want to be. So, yeah. That's incredible. And my face just, no one can see me. <laughs> and although I don't have a wig on, I've got my makeup, you're running emotional, but my face lit up hearing all that. I'll tell you why, though. You mentioned one of my special interests, and that is the icon who sadly is no longer here, that was also an Aquarius, like both of us, Sarah Kane. Sarah Kane, yeah. Heard that and I went, now that's very interesting because mm. one of the questions I was giving to you that I'm going to mm. give was what kind of artists influence or inspire your work? And she was one that when I was doing advanced higher drama, I wrote a play called Strawberry Jam, which was based on 4.48, but it was all about CF. Wow. And it was about this sort of internalized monologue of different parts of my persona, all imitating doctors, nurses, family, relationships, and all talking at me whilst I was in a hospital bed dealing with an infection. Mm. I'd wrote this and my drama teacher went to me, what the fuck is this? Because she, <laughs> where's this come from? I went, well, I've been reading all of Sarah Kane's work. And she went, of course. But my English teacher had never heard of her. And I introduced her to her. Wow. This is incredible. And then when she read Strawberry Jam, she went, oh my God. I'll need to let you read a copy of that. Um, I'd love to read it. It's one that I actually, um, I used it to get a job that I didn't get, but then I got a letter of support. So it was kind of a blessing actually. But yeah. the Strawberry Jam particularly was really interesting. And I probably shouldn't say this, but I will, re will reveal this. I'd seen the application, the deadline was midnight and it was 10 o'clock and I needed to give two examples of work. And I went, I've only got one that's fully finished on me on my new computer. And I had my hard drive and I went, oh, here's my stuff from six year. And I saw Strawberry Jam, I went, oh, I'd, I'd, I'll just chuck it in. And they gave it absolute beautiful review. And I thought, really? Because yeah. <laughs> I'm 26 and I wrote it when I was 17. But there's something about those raw early things, isn't there? Like I also like wrote a Sarah Kane influence play when I was a teenager. I think... There's, uh, that's the thing she's so genius at is she connects to those like febrile raw moments where you're like, oh my God, I'm on the verge of living or not living or, you know, I'm right in that gray area in between where it's really alive. Yeah. Um, and that is, that's the size of your emotions when you're a teenager, you know? So it doesn't make, make it any less valid or any, it could be, I mean, I just always think there's a fake thing about age, isn't there? Where it's like, you do gain craft and stuff, but sometimes I'm like, I'd rather have, you know, that's that 17 year old written bit of rawness than someone who's cynical and 16. <laughs> I mean, you're the cocktail talking. <laughs> All right. I totally understand where you're, where you're coming from, actually. Because um, it's funny with the Sarah Kane stuff, because like, I am such a saddle. But when I say a special interest, babe, I mean like, Special interest. I went and yeah. looked at a database that can tell you people's birth charts, and I've got the same birth chart as her. Oh, okay. So there's a universe connection here. Weird. Very weird. Um, but 
for you, you know, you've mentioned one, but you know, what sort of artists actually do influence, inspire your work? I mean, probably, so like a lot of visual artists, like I'm a real visual art nerd um, and love people like Nan Golden, who's a photographer, mm-hmm. um, or Carrie Mae Weems, another photographer. Um, yeah, probably filmmakers like Lynn Ramsey, the director, mm-hmm. um, who I feel like you'd love. There's a filmmaker called Bruce Paxton, and I think like Charlie Kaufman, a lot of a lot of that stuff. And then like really a lot of TV when I was younger, which I feel like in theatre world you're not really meant to reference. You know? What TV? But like, oh my god, so like so many like Buffy, you know what I mean? Stuff where that got me into storytelling and like character and had queerness in it in a way that I only now appreciate that I'm like lucky it was there so I could I could see myself in Willow you know I could see myself in Oz actually to be honest um and I think like yeah I think all of that probably has more effect and a lot of bands like Young Fathers I just adore Edinburgh Band um and I was really into like the Manic Street Preachers because they were really political really visual um so yeah a lot a lot of um pop culture that probably music videos massively I always say that but I really mean it like Missy Elliott's music videos are just a huge influence I know I just every single every single play I've done has an influence from a Missy Elliott or Madonna music video so yeah oh my god another special interest Madonna (laughs) yeah 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 I mean I used to it's so funny we I did a piece at the Royal Court the other day and one of the influences was um Madonna's like night must have been early 90s performance at maybe the EMAs mm-hmm. where she does Vogue crossed with Marie Antoinette. Rock a period like sort of it was taking inspiration of Dane yeah. or Les yeah. Jure, yeah. That's exactly it and we use that as like a influence and the you know the amazing movement director Chai Sun Howard was like oh do you know this and I was like do I know this like I wore the VHS tape out of this at my I used to watch it on repeat. I'd memorise the whole Material Girl um, music video. I could act out every single scene of it. So I think all of those things play in. And Madonna, you know, like, the, oh, the original. Queer icon. Re- yeah, absolutely. Like, subversion just dripped from her. It's so interesting you bring that up because, um, so we were having a conversation a few months ago about favourite Madonna albums in the drag community. And everyone was like, oh, who's everyone's favourite? And you've got people saying... Material Girls, their favourite song, Vogue. And, I, and everyone was like, what's yours? And I went, Deeper and Deeper. And they went, eh? And I went, album's my favourite album. And they went, why? I went, revolutionary. And they were like, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. I went, yeah, but hear me out. They're like, yeah, I went, the 90s, she did the rock album, which was high, heavily influenced by the 90s house scene, the under mm-hmm. culture, like Vogue, et cetera. And they went, yeah, I went, and Deeper and Deeper is filmed in an LGBT club where you can see drag queens, trans women, trans men, queer, openly queer people. And in that album, she talks a lot about sex around the time she did the erotica book. And when I was at my doing my MA, one of the things that I will talk about that I've mentioned already in the podcast, so I'm not worried about saying this, was when I was doing my MA, I'll need to send you photos. You might have seen my website. Um, I did this photo shoot inspired by hers. And what I did was me... And like fetish and then like basically half mm-hmm. at one point. <laughs> it's, no, honestly, but what I did was she'd done sort of really taboo subjects. Like there's a photo of a rim and a guy and everyone was like, <gasps> <laughs> like women rim men, men rim women, people rim people, it happens. Mm-hmm. That photo shoot that I'd done, I was like, I had, so there was one photo where I'm naked and my, I've got a sin bin for medication waste in front of my crotch. 
And then I was, uh, there was one where I'm in fetish outfit with nasal prongs for oxygen on my nose. And I met a performance artist in London who I interviewed on the podcast in season two, who's got CF. And he said to me, I went, Tim, you inspired that photo shoot and so did Madonna. And he went, I find that so funny because I just look at those photos and think they're up here. And I went, oh my God, I'm so cheesy. But I totally get what you mean with daring to try things differently. Like that Vogue video I've seen, my favourite Madonna performance always will actually be when she does dress you up because yes, yeah. I had a bad breakup, of course. Um, mm-hmm. I went to see Jock Tamsin's Burns mm-hmm. and um, dress you up. And I watched it and went, oh, this is so happy. And I was going through a bad time. So it's that thing of music can just take you in our world. Mm-hmm. And I had a Madonna party. I've had two Madonna parties in my whole life where everyone dressed up as Madonna. And I'd had a flat warming. And that song now, I remember it was months ago and I started singing again in lessons. I sat and went, I'm going to watch this. And every time I'm, I'm sad or I need like, or I'm happy, I'm going to watch this and think, I could be her one day doing that maybe. I yeah. Could. And... I just totally love that you've mentioned that and kind of said the influence of that. Because um, things like even her, Britney and Xena, I watch when I'm absolutely like steaming with my bubble or even pre-pandemic, I would have it as a house party. Be like, let's watch the When They Kiss because it was revolutionary at the time. It was revolutionary. Yeah, I, I know. And you can, tra- you can trace like her cultural lineage from there, like all the way up to like the, the performance of um, Warp that was on recently. Yeah. Um, you know, like you can, that co- that comes all the way from her, which is just like kind of phenomenal. I love it. Honestly, I can't, I'm so, I did not know about you that you liked Madonna as well. Oh my God. Yeah. I, that's brilliant. So can you chat to me about then, obviously the Royal Court is a big deal. Chat me mm. what that was like being a trainee director of the Royal Court at 24. Oh my God. It was like uh, unbelievable. Like I got there just as Vicky Bellison was taking over. Um, so it was shifting, you know, like it was, it'd been under one management, it was going to a new management. So the culture there was shifting, what it was about was shifting. But the thing that sustains it all the way through is that it is so driven by trying to find the new. And particularly, I think like Vicky's such a phenomenal leader because every, everyone is united in that building in values. Um, so you're, you know, it's an extremely diverse building um, by nature. Um, but the thing you everyone feels like you're going into battle for the same reason and it's to tell these unheard stories to find the new to challenge you know like it and it feels always like what you're doing is worth the time and effort and soul and blood that you're pouring into it because it is asking those bigger things and I think it taught me it taught me basics that are vital like how to be in a rehearsal room how to back yourself and um, it probably also took it took me my time there to realize what I could contribute you know you turn up and I had I probably had quite a different accent to be honest it's probably softened a lot over the years like I definitely sounded more like you at one point and now I sound like this and I played down my background and then actually by the end I realized these are the you know played down my queerness even by the end these are the things that I realized I needed to be loud about because they were what I was bringing to the table and the court is a kind of space that actually encourages that like it, it wants to make those elements louder. Um, and yeah, I assisted some of the best directors in the world who are working on shows that were challenging in every possible way from like, you know, 16 child actors to TV stars to plays that were changing every preview massively to um, small studio productions. So I've got a huge experience and, it, and it's essentially my home, really. It's my home theatre where I feel most myself and most um, committed to 
what it stands for alongside it. And I went back there a couple of weeks ago to do the living newspaper where they're doing sort of different pieces all over the building that fits into this newspaper format. And it's employing loads of freelancers to make stuff that's quite responsive. And it was live for that brief period in the pandemic where stuff could open, but now it's completely online. And it was just brilliant to go back to be amongst, there was two other Chini directors there called Millie Batia and Izzy Raby who are just so inspiring and so brilliant. And we were co-directing together. And I was like this, this yeah, I just, the peer group that you're amongst is just the best. Like you, it's, it's the absolute sort of like, top level of people in their skill but also in their compassion and in their empathy and the spaces they create are really held and creative and fun and like really silly and also politically challenging and why else would you want to be anywhere else and I was making work on film which I adore so that that married kind of everything together it's a really brilliant place it they're also just starting a big project about decolonizing their history and I think the Royal Court's always at the front of those discussions. Um, what it means to be in that building, how do you examine the systemic structures the, yeah, that are in place? How do you unpick them? And I just, to be there, sometimes, yeah, I wish, I wish everywhere could get to that point in the conversation, but I'm so, like, dreaming the culture forward. I'm so uh, proud and privileged to be mm. affiliated to the Royal Court who is at the front of that and will always push it, you know? It's incredible. And the thing you talk about decolonization is so apt because one of my friends, Lucy Small, who I've known for years, and my friend Catriona Kalkini's best friends were like the BBC Social had shared her video on famous Scottish figures that actually had been behind slavery. Wow. It was a big thing. And, and she just did it because she's passionate about making sure that people are white allies to the communities and make mm-hmm. sure they speak out. And she was, it was informative. She did her research. She interviewed a black woman who was talking about who's much older, I think in her 70s, who actually talked mm. about what it's been like in our country. So it was proper done well. And I thought, well done, Lucy. She's a journalist as well. And she didn't anticipate, I guess, because she'd shared it saying, oh my God, I can't believe this, one million views and on BBC's actual website after it. Wow. Holy shit. Four minutes of enough information. As always, trolls, nasty comments, but... If we weren't doing things differently, I'd, I'd be surprised if people wouldn't complain. But that's that's a systematic thing that as queer people, as people of colour, black people, like we we all gender, you know, we all know that there is a systematic issue going on across the globe. And it's incredible that you got to work with such amazing people. Mm. Um, seen on social media the last couple of weeks, you were in stuff like that, and I thought, amazing, it's just so great. And one thing I thought was really actually um, quite brilliant I would just like to throw a compliment at you because I think you're amazing that <laughs> you were sharing stuff about them giving them praise making it about them and I thought that's incredible because you've got a lot of people that um I think in the industry would maybe go I'm working and, and I'm helping them but you actually like no it's they are amazing look at their what they're doing and I thought that's that's what I want people to do that's what I do so I totally just think I'm so glad it was such a great experience it's got to be done we've got to lift each other you know, like it's hard out here, you know, <laughs> and, okay. and, you know, both you and I are really direct people who don't bullshit. So if I'm backing someone, I'm going to back them all the way. And I just truly find like the most inspiring people are at my, at my, with, you know, with me in my peer group. Um, and they make me want to be better, a better director and they make me want to make more art. So yeah. I think you've got to shout loud, right? It's that dire, it, honestly, it's that moon that yeah. makes us direct and go, we're not having this, did he start? 
you're so I'm here for it. Um, obviously, one thing I want to throw at you that I didn't really maybe mention, you know, you obviously are openly part of the queer community and you said that in the Royal Court, you kind of maybe at the beginning kind of brought that down a little bit. And, you know, what's that been like as an artist then that identifies with the queer community? What's that been like for you? Such a good question. So I get like, so I'm pansexual, so I've gone out with men, with women, and my current partner is non-binary. Um, and I've, so I've, you know, walked down the street holding hands with every possible gender identity. And um, it's an incredibly different experience with each one. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's just like Catholic upbringing, isn't it? But it's also to do with the, yeah, with the world that you are part of and how it welcomes you and like the, and by no means like the court was very welcoming about all of that and is brilliant at it but it was me dealing with it like it was me going oh like how do I bring this out what, what does it mean about me um and it's taken me a long time on that journey to kind of get there but really the point where I've kind of at my most full self is when I've like really embraced that queerness and really gone like the, this is all the shades of me you know like this this is part of who I am like and I and I also am genderqueer and you know like fill into that but like I get assumed female all the time obviously because of the really simple thing of long hair and makeup which I wouldn't give up I fucking love long hair and makeup um but in terms you know like I used they them pronouns when I was at high school because I thought it suited me more um and now I'd use she or they because I feel fine with both it doesn't hurt me to use she her like like the trans people in my life um, who are maybe more binary or more solidly only they, them, there's pain, there's dysphoria caused. For me, that doesn't really happen. I just, mm. they, them is closer to my experience of myself and my own body really. Um, and I think the, the more and more that I've leaned towards that, the better things are, like the clearer you are about yourself. I think other people might find it harder, um, but they're not, that's not my, that's not mine. <laughs> that's not my problem. Um, and the, it's that thing which I would say to all, I think maybe you probably find this the same dirty, like all the things that at any point you try to make quieter about yourself are, are absolutely the points of strength that you have. Mm. So the, the more that you lean into whatever your thing is, like whatever the, the variances in your identity that maybe don't make you the default, they are the strengths because they're the things that give you insight and empathy and strength and stories, you know? Um, so I think, yeah, it's taken a long time, but like now I am definitely there. And the last thing I did before the pandemic, um, I was doing a play at Royal Welsh, but before that I did a night called Queers Up Front and uh, curated two nights of queer artists and um, hosted the night. Um, and my partner was also the co-curator. And it was just this gorgeous moment of community in the Bunker Theatre, um, programmed by Chris Sonnex, the absolute icon. And yeah, I just remember being like, wow, this is like a... A, you know a real moment from that like kind of 17 year old um in a catholic school you know who had friends who embraced their queerness but like wasn't too loud about it to like hosting this night in the middle of london in a really good trouser suit you know <laughs> like it's a totally different world and from there i worked on maybe you saw overflow at the bush theater which was this play by travis alabanza Mm -hmm. um about a trans woman um played by reese lyon who's absolutely incredible and yeah, it just was such a glorious moment to be in a room of like trans and non-binary people and uh, and to like kind of be the majority for once mm. and to make a piece that absolutely was going to reach cis audiences and, um, you know, connect them to particularly trans women's plights, mm. um, especially now in the UK. Mm. Um, 
but also was for trans audiences. Like it was for, it's for them to come along and recognize themselves. It was for us. And that felt like a real kind of watershed moment. Mm. That's incredible. I didn't know you'd actually done that. Well done, you and your partner, both icons, in my opinion, for the <laughs> rehearsals when we were working together. You know, you'd mentioned you used to go to the street and CCs like me, and I thought, oh my God, yeah. learning something new because I didn't realize at this point you were even from Edinburgh, let alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all knew that we all the same bars. <laughs> I remember it was like we had missed miss each other by like a millisecond of a year because you said the last time you were really there was probably 11, 12 and I went, I literally went in 13. So it was, I feel like we maybe didn't meet each other then but we met each other now. The world brought us together somehow still and I think that's beautiful. Meant uh, to be. It's so, one thing I want to throw at you as well that maybe takes us on a tangent but I would like to actually talk about if this is possible um, and feel free to say no, you'd rather not go into it and delve into it. We've never had actually someone who had a Catholic upbringing on Afternoon Delight in three seasons. Wow. So I would just like maybe a few minutes to hear what it was maybe like growing up Catholic and then realising you were queer. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. I think, to be honest, being straight and Catholic's hard enough. <laughs> because, yeah. because, because of the complex relationship to sexuality of any form. Um, and to be honest, like challenging even that is, is a big deal. Um, and I think, ah, God, I think like unraveling the complexities that Catholicism hands you in the form of shame and guilt mm. is a life's work. Like it's, it's, mm. it's bred into you so small mm. and, and you know, that like, we're not very good at naming it, but absolutely it was a homophobic environment. It wasn't, it wasn't even particularly subtle. Um, and I think freeing, it's probably what turned me away from the whole idea of the church and the religion. Like I'm very extremely lapsed, but of course you're going to be. If something can't accept you in its wholeness, but preaches love at you, I can't live with that kind of dissonance. Like that's, that's hypocrisy to me. So I had a real strong reaction against the church. And, you know, even at school, I had these two best friends, Sophie and Leanne, who are still both in Edinburgh, both um, phenomenal humans. And we would, you know, we would like, like gender fuck we dress in all sorts of like manners and use our makeup and use you know like being androgynous and stuff and it was all of this pushback against something that was trying to limit us and prevent us from expressing our full selves and I think um I think that's really hard it's a really hard thing especially as a teenager when you're like trying to explore all the possible like corners of your identity to have something which kind of is telling you that this part of it is not only incorrect, it's actually actively disgusting and off-putting, yeah. but that you are loved. <laughs> it's like, well, this love comes with a condition, so yeah. I'm not so sure. So yeah, but you know what? Catholicism, what Catholicism did give me was a real sense of drama <laughs> because it is a very high drama religion with a lot of imagery in it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's... It's definitely to blame for a lot of things, but equally, I think it's probably it's probably had that bounce back effect where, having come through it, I'm now like even more robust and strong in who I am because I had to go through that. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Well, I will tell you this, Debbie. This is something you probably will not expect. I am not Catholic, but I grew up Christian, and every Sunday went to church until yes. I was fourteen. So I totally understand the religious upbringing, not the Catholic part, but yeah. um, I've got a half-brother and his half-sisters both went to Holyrood and a Catholic. Yeah. 
and they would tell me, you know, when I, when I said I was going to church when I was 13, and they kind of went, what? And I kind of went, do you not go? They went, like, fuck, and I went, all right. <laughs> but when I, I would sit in church, um, it was really interesting, because what I loved about, genuinely only about church, was the, the hymns. Was, yeah. was the spirituality aspect of singing out loud and mm. the Bible. I was really fortunate that my nana, um, who took me to church, my great-aunt, great-auntie, because my mum worked at the weekends, single mum life. So I was, I didn't really get an option. I had to go to church because I was under their care. And they took me. And it would, um, it was so interesting because uh, this is going to really flabbergaster you and go, what the fuck? It's 14, right? And... I'd stopped going to church because I didn't want to go because I just was like, I'm, it wasn't even actually that I was anti-religious. I just went, I'm too old to do this now. Yeah. And I was, my mum had gave me a key for the flat. So it was like, I would sit in my nana's just because I was visiting her. Mm-hmm. The things that happened was that um, she said, I've recorded something on Channel 4 and um, I really feel like you'd benefit watching it. Now, I'd never at any point said I thought I was gay because I didn't even realise I was actually 14. I still was like, who am I? What am I doing with my life? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And she was like, and she fell asleep in films, TV. She just, she didn't watch things. But then we'd like, my mom would come, she'd go, we watched this and this is what it was. And <laughs> it happened, you dreamed the ending, hun. And yeah. Uh, it was Clapham Junction on Channel 4. Okay. Uh, I can't, she knew, she must have known, obviously. But I remember her falling asleep and that like sex scene comes on and I think, Okay. <laughs> and luckily I thought she'd done, thank God. But the funniest thing was when it finished, she said, what was it about? And I said, oh, the gays, and this is what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And I'd say to her, oh, you know, I'm, if I, and I've never told anyone this, actually. I've told one friend this, so we'll, we'll make this episode authentic. Um, I'd say to her, what if I was like that? And she went, what if you were like that? I, I wanted you to watch it for a reason. And I went, all right, okay, cool, no worries. And she was very Christian. Mm. But the funniest thing was my mum, when my mum had been interviewed for the documentary I did, they were like, how did you feel about Jordan being gay? And then them realising they were a drag queen and stuff. And she's like, oh, I grew up around drag queens. My mum, and they didn't use this footage, but she even said my mum's best friends were all gay because my mum was a community ed teacher and a primary school teacher. So she grew up in the arts. We were always at shows every week. So mm. the gays my whole life, this is not new for me. And yeah. I, Thank God, thank God. Even though in a religious upbringing, there is still those little points that I never like to have someone on and go, so you're Catholic, let's talk. Yeah, yeah. You're queer, but you did grow up Catholic, sure, because there will be younger people that, I'm not a Christian now, I'm a spiritual person, I just believe mm. in me, but there are people that come on that I kind of go, well, if they're religious, that's that's their thing, it's just not for me. But I would love, that's why I wanted to hear your experience. Yeah. Thanks so much. And I really respect all people's right to practice the religion they want like I'll I'll even defend that you know when it's something I really don't believe because I believe in like your freedom to do what you can but I think it's almost that systemic thing again like individual Christians Catholics you know I'm sure we like you just said we've got examples of real love and acceptance from those individuals Mm. but it's the institution and the system that's not Mm. that's uh, so deeply flawed and teaches flawed things for me. Bimini Bon Bullash was right in the patriarchy I could not back them enough. <laughs> Actually, it was funny when we did Galatea on a on Wednesday, we had a wee Zoom afterwards, drunk, getting drunk, and everyone was ranting and rambling. And they went, Jordi, you look really quiet. I went, I've got three words. And they went, yeah, I went, fuck the patriarchy. And they went, yeah. I just went, that's all I have to say on the matter. 
I don't say much, but when I speak. <laughs> Moon and Torres is thriving when I have my little short statements. So you have been directing work during the pandemic. What's it been like directing online? And even you, I saw obviously you were doing some stuff in rehearsal spaces and stuff, but what's it been like being a director during the pandemic? I'd love to hear your thoughts and feelings, personal and professional. Feel free to be like, it's been a fucking nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard. That's the fast answer. I mean, it's, uh, so I was like meant to move to Edinburgh. I was meant to start working at the Traverse as court estate director and that didn't happen. COVID happened. So I had to stay in London, find a new flat. You know, I'd given up my flat. Um, and so I had a whole parallel universe life that I was meant to be living out, you know, uh, artistic director at the age of like uh, 31 or 32 at that point. Um, you know, re- like absolutely on paper, the ideal. And then the, all that was gone. Um and, you know, the job didn't work out in the end because of COVID. But I did have this kind of pandemic time where I was working online. So partly for them, partly um, freelance on multiple projects. And the, honestly, I uh, at the time, it, it was a bit of a nightmare. Like working on Zoom isn't easy. I've got an invisible disability that makes it quite difficult. Um, but I, I have so much gratitude for the pieces I did make. I made work with, I made a piece called Shielders, funnily enough, with Matilda Binney over Zoom. I did R&Ds of plays over Zoom. Um, I I got my first BBC credit uh, doing a piece with Headlong. Um, I did National Theatre Scotland scene for survival. Um, Multiple readings and pieces for the Traverse. Um, So yeah, it's it's hard because like my thing is people in person, you know, (laughs) and like on Zoom, you can't really read what people are thinking so easily and um, all, all the stuff that everyone will say um, but the thing I've come out of it is just huge love for actors like I think actors are just phenomenal mm. and I am so grateful to be in any collaborative creative space with actors and writers doing that stuff and it is an app it's been a shit show let's face it but I'm so grateful to have made creative work and mm-hmm. to the fucking absolute testament to the arts that it will withstand even the closures of the buildings you know like the thing that you think would end all theatre and making did not end it because it is bigger and more important and more vital than that and I think that's what we have to take you know we've got to value the art so much more in the UK so many other countries set a better precedent and we've we've got to notice like you don't have that box set to watch you don't have that theatre show to tune into unless you back it, unless you systemically back it, you pour money and resource into it, your government gets behind it so that you've got that stuff to love and experience. And I think hopefully that's what we take from this year because I know that I uh, have savoured every every bit of creative work we did, including our one most recently. I mean, it turns out after 14 months that our jobs are viable. Who'd have thought? You know what? The most viable of all the jobs I've ever had (laughs) because... Mm-hmm. I, my mum worked in the job centre for 40 years right so I've been raised with like such a good understanding of and people shit on the job centre but really it's the front line of anti-poverty work like she worked with under 18s she worked with people in long-term unemployment I have always been so conscious and of what work means what regular work means what it means to be grateful for that stuff um, and I could absolutely criticize the way that the welfare system is being handled right now and would happily do it um but I remember saying to my mum one day, like, oh, you know, you've got a really, you've got a proper job and I've got a kind of silly job. And she just like read me for filth because she was like, 
what why do you think I'm getting people off benefits do you think it's so they can go and work more do you think it's so they don't spend time with their kids it's so they can read a book it's so they can go to a play so they can go to a film it's so they can feel something and like understand their own you know life and family and love more and that's what you're doing we're two sides of the same coin and I remember like whenever I'm in rooms with people who are like oh you know it's just what we do is just so silly and frivolous and ridiculous and I'm just like nah it's like okay yeah we're not like you know nursing people back to life but like once you've got the people living you've got to have something to live for you've got to have joy you've got to have emotion and we are that vital and if that isn't viable what the fuck is more capitalism you know <laughs> I've got enough of it the thing is, Debbie, like all these politicians that would have said this probably went home, watched the BBC, Netflix, Prime, yeah. watched things that they consider not viable. I mean, that answers your question. Do you know what I mean? You've been binge watching Killing Eve. How many playwrights were in that writer's room? Exactly. You know? Yeah. In there, you've got an invisible disability. And again, I had seen that on your Twitter info. Mm. It was quite in your bio. You know, if you would like to share your experiences of that, I'd feel free for you to do that. But I wouldn't like to push it on you, but... Yeah, it's, it's called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and it's um, a, a connective tissue disorder. So collagen doesn't form properly in your body. And obviously connective tissue is pretty key because <laughs> it connects everything in your body. And so how that uh, shows up is like dislocations. So like this morning, I dislocated my shoulder and my jaw and that's just normal life for me. I know I just push it back. <laughs> um And there's a lot of pain management, there's chronic fatigue, there's a lot of inflammation. Um, I think... Yeah, it's again, it's been a thing of reckoning where I used to really deny it, push through, burn out and get really hurt and just not ask for what I needed um, because I could because no one I have this strange privilege of it being invisible where I can just pretend I'm fine and I can ignore the migraine and the digestive problems and the dislocated kneecap and I can keep going and I just push through. And, you know, at that point, when I first moved to London, especially was first freelancing in London, I didn't want to give anyone an excuse not to give me a job. And that was my own internalized ableism, 100%. And I realized that, like, I have to advocate for what I need because it means other people will. And now I'm in rooms with younger people who have disabilities of all kinds. And I, I ask for what I need, which is a different kind of chair, regular breaks. I have to respect the fact I get a, a lunch break, not work through it. We, we don't try not to do three session tech days. All these things, that, again, seem impossible. And, oh, how dare you ask for it? No, it's all possible. There is a way around it. There is a way to actually be inclusive. But it took me a long time to get to the point of articulating that and asking for it. Um, and yeah, it's a very, it's one of those complex um, conditions where there's a lot of symptoms that flare up and down. It's not consistent which seems to blow people's minds. Mm. I've used different mobility aids at certain times um, and people can't handle that that changes from day to day. <laughs> We've got this really fixed idea of what disability is that you know, kind of needs exploding open, really. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's, I've only started to talk about it now when I felt like it wasn't going to lose me jobs or lose me standing. Mm. Um, and partly because I was like, I don't want to work with anyone who would use that as something or see that as a limitation like that's a really good filter <laughs> do you know it's so funny and I'm trying not to cry on this podcast interview not with your makeup like that <laughs> oh keep it like this oh thank you but no I will say um I am so similar to you uh, mm. I didn't really know that you advocated for these sort of things as well but as you know I've got CF and yeah it's funny because when I was at my worst you know there's during the pandemic it's been hard it's been yeah. hard 
people have died of this virus. It's not something I want to go, oh, well, you know, a lot on the podcast I talk about, there has been good moments despite the pandemic and a lot of resetting for people. But one of the things is that with cystic fibrosis, like a bad mm. infection that I was getting every five weeks were the symptoms you would get with COVID. Oh. So interesting, because when people were messaging me that they had COVID and they were really poorly, and I'd kind of, I had a weird reservation where I'd go, that, and it wasn't against them, it was more of me going, that was me every five weeks. Mm-hmm. The pandemic, then the amazing cashflow medication came out, changed CF as we know it. Mm. But that was me every five weeks. But see, when I was doing, like, ill every five weeks, I was constantly sorting up jobs, working more than I should have for other people, covering shifts when I could. And I do kind of now sit and go, it's really ironic, and I just think it's so interesting you brought this up, for me that I now would actually limit myself more when I'm more well than I did when I was actually ill. Same. But now I advocate and say, well, I have got CF. And and one of the things I will say is when we were working together, what I really valued, and and you know this personally and professionally, was that when I was getting in a bit of a tivy going, oh, my God, I'm having to do all these things, blah, blah. And the amount of times you'd go, take a 10-minute mm. yourself. And a lot of people I've worked with pre-pandemic, had it been like that, they'd kind of go, well, come on. And I'd go, it, and, I, and I felt like, well, I've got an invisible illness. And it's, you know, I know what you mean that, I remember I'll tell a funny story. We've got plenty of time on this interview, but uh, once went for a job interview, and it was years ago, I'll talk about it now. I went for a job interview years ago. First job at uni, right? And it was to work in a primary school as like a, um, a support worker for the after school club. And I didn't tell her I had CF in the interview. And then she gave me the application, like sort of details. And I put, oh, I've got CF. And she said after like a week later, you've wrote you have CF. Can I just double check? Um, like, obviously, are you, are you keeping well? And I went, and I was keeping well. So I went, oh yeah, yeah. I'm totally fine. Six months later, I started to get all the time. Mm. I had that weird reservation that I in my head was like, if I go into this interview and I need a job after uni and say, I've got CF, they'll not hire me. And it's that, and I know what you mean, it's that invisible illness of she didn't know, but the more, yeah. oh, I've got CF when on the application. And I went, oh, I'm fine now, because I was fine. I was, I was well, I was, everything was going well. Um, I totally understand what you mean. It's, it's difficult. And thank you for educating me and my listeners on the, the um, disability you have, because I wasn't actually aware of this until now. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's 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 getting more and more diagnosed. Um, but it's it's one of those ones that takes a long time to get a diagnosis. Mm. Um, you can get like misnamed through the years. But yeah, it's hard. It's hard to I I've never quite I, I talk about this with like disabled friends a lot who, you know, of all varieties and like each one has its own um stuff that comes with it. So you've got the visibility of maybe being a wheelchair user. Mm. Um but I'm, you know, I've spoken to friends who are wheelchair users, and it, but they're like, oh, but I don't have to explain myself every two minutes, whereas you do, you know. And there's, mm. um, and not not that that's an equal thing, but it's just more that like, there is an allyship in that community where you're like, mm. yeah, we're all coming up against different versions of like systemic ableism, and and you know that thing you were saying about like taking a break in rehearsal, like I'm just like, I, yeah, I can't, I've been in rooms where that isn't the case. So I, t- I really know what you mean. And I just don't get it. Like, I'm like, we, we work with humans. Like, we're not, we're not accountants, you know, who probably actually have great HR, you know what I mean? But we work with emotions and humans and bodies. Why are we not accepting that? And, and you get better work. Like, our, our, you know, our piece went really well because we like took a break and we all like did better for it. You know what I mean? It's, it's no, it's not a sacrifice to be inclusive. That's the thing. 
it's better for everyone. It's not a sacrifice to be inclusive. Oprah moment. <laughs> <laughs> every time, every time. Every time. You are very similar to me in so many ways. But what's it been like coping the last 14 months? You know, feel free to share every interview and guest comes on and says, you know, people have went to therapy, people have wrote lists, people have exercised, people have um, had partners that are life coaches. You know, what's mm -hmm. your way of coping? Um, you know what, like taking time that I didn't ever have, like I work to fill up, to not deal with stuff. Like I work to... To, yeah, I know, we're very similar again. See? I work to not deal with my shit and to just work and work and work. And so to have this pause meant reckoning with my mental health, reckoning with where I was. And, you know, my like I said, I had a job that was lined up and suddenly that was gone. So then what, what are my ambitions? Who am I then? Mm. And taking the time to process that. And I think the way I supported that is like honestly making my home life really nice. That used to be a secondary thing for me where I'd be like, I'm barely here. I'm at work all the time. And I had to make my space nice. I, you know, I got to like actually see my partner rather than us both being always away, always on tour. Um, and, you know, they've been like an absolute delight. Like it's been gorgeous. We'll never have a year like that again. And I'm just so grateful for it. So I think appreciating um, my home life really. And also like on the invisible, invisible disability front, like instead of saying I'll do physio, doing it. <laughs> Yeah. just sort of revolutionary for me where I'll be like yeah 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 I'll do physics yeah yeah <laughs> like, absolutely not so just take taking time really and I think like ex acknowledging that it's really hard mm -hmm. trying to trying to be creative without being pressured that's probably the other thing so writing painting like I, I love yeah that's I love making art I love all of it like a lot of drawing getting back into stuff that I had put away in boxes and ignored for myself you know like I wanted to be a, a visual artist when I was younger digging all that stuff out like rediscovering my love of writing that I sort of like packed away at the age of 21 and mm. um so yeah just take trying to make the best of the time really but I'm so I just so advocate for therapy as well I think everyone and everyone should do it I'm advocate for mental health medication anything you need to get through this this is hard hard shit to do what you need to do Oprah moment number three yeah <laughs> I'm racking them up being able to be creative without the added pressure like it's yeah it's such an important thing actually as artists one of my first ever guests and my first ever guest actually Rue Jasla drag queen Glasgow had said I like to keep busy I like to work and do all this and I was like amazing great that's great I'm glad that works for you but my thing similar to yours was doing therapy it was weird because I went to therapy pre-pandemic and I went to my therapist's house privately sat in her room offloaded went hours up by left yeah it was there compartmentalized yeah to deal with my house right but the moment the pandemic happened on zoom digitally with her and I've, I've said this in the podcast already, by the way, shout out to therapists that have managed to navigate digital therapy. It's a hard, whole, you know, yeah, thing. reading the room. So it's now reading a fucking screen. Mm. That was when, weirdly enough, I did all my proper therapy of sitting, going, she'd go to me, right. I actually, I remember one session, Debbie, I'd said to her, I literally said to her, right, I need to deal with my shit now. And she mm. went, and I've been coming to you for two years privately and I need to deal with it. And she went, okay. So she would ask me things. And I think it was that transfers of power that I was saying to her, you need to actually push me now. And she would say, I'd say something, she'd go, and how does that feel? And I'd go, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But I used to be like, I don't know if you believe in the Myers-Briggs test, but I used to be an mm-hmm. EJ where I was very much like, I need to do this and we need to get this going. And then book on Tinder for months was, um, used to be an ENTJ that I went to fed and paid him an ENFJ. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's that thing, isn't it, that I really got in touch with myself. And then I know I joked about this when we were rehearsing because I like to make light hard jokes about things that I have actually healed from, not things that are going on at the time. And mm-hmm. it, as an Aquarius, I don't know if you feel this, but I just don't sleep as an Aquarius. So I went on an antidepressant to help me sleep and it changed mm-hmm. my life. Like, I, I'm a yeah. t- it changed my life. And I've spoken about this on season two of Afternoons Light where it changed my life. Like, I didn't realize for years how much my mental health had suffered because of my lack of sleep. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, lack of sleep is everything. I feel like it's my lifelong, like I could write a book about it. It's, it's like my lover, my abusive partner. Like it's just, yeah. sleep is, it's, it's the key. It's the key to wellness. And I wish someone would t- tell me the solution because <laughs> it's so hard. So I'm glad you found some version of that piece. Yeah. So in Debbie's world, what is, if I had to give you, I'll, I'll say one, but I'll give every guest three. What is the fa- the favourite thing you've ever directed? And you don't have to say mine, because obviously we've worked together. Uh, but, Wait till that's released. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've genuinely, like, um, is there one thing in particular that you always go, that, or is there a top three? Because a lot of my guests go, I can't pick one, I'm like, top three then, but... Um, I think, I mean, I've mentioned a few favourites like Panopticon, Big Time, Little Miss Burden, Massively, and Overflow. Like, they're they're really close to my heart. I'd say one that I haven't mentioned um, is Cuckoo by Lisa Carroll. And the reason that's a favourite is because I did a show just before it that totally destroyed my confidence. Like, completely everything went, I can't even begin the ways in which it went wrong and in the ways in which I compromised. Um, and suffered for that compromise and um I was done with theatre like I was like no I can never do that again and I had one more show booked which is this play Cuckoo and I was like okay fuck it it's my last show I'm going to make it the most me show that I've ever done uh I'm only going to work with people I adore or people I'm really excited about and I assembled this incredible team um designer um called Basha who trained in Scotland lighting designer called um, Jess Hong Hang Yun, who's the best lighting designer in the UK, easily. Um, this is all years ago, though, before they'd like blew up quite as big. Um, and a, a phenomenal cast. And I just let loose as entirely me, and I did not compromise on one thing in it. Good. And that show, and you know, it was a bit like my swan song. I was like, fuck it, burn the house down as you leave, you know. Um, and that show got me a, an agent. An agent came to see it and was like, um, I, I adore my agent, Jessica. Um, and she was like, got in touch with me. And I was like, well, why do you want me? You know, I, I, I was so done with theatre. I was kind of like, I, I was sort of like not bothered about this. And then actually like her enthusiasm and the audience's reaction to it brought me back to realising how powerful it can be. And that was in 2018. And the one of the lead characters was non-binary. And that was before, you know, like people like Janelle Monáe and Sam Smith and stuff had even began using the word in a really public sphere. So it was ahead of its time. It was about Ireland. It's about working class young people. It's about Brexit. It was all the things combined. It had a dance routine that was like a mental music video where people had animal heads. Um, so it was just very me. <laughs> um, and so I, I, even though it was upstairs in Soho Theatre, which is a small, perfectly formed small venue, 
I still go back to that as being like, that's what happens when you don't compromise. And there's really healthy compromise, of course, where you can like meet in the middle, find a solution, collaborate. But that was the version of things where like nothing was less than I wanted it to be. And I didn't get, I didn't get shoved because I don't know, someone thought I was younger or, you know, a, a female who should just agree or whatever. None, none of those things happened because I was like, no, this is it. This is what it needs to be. Mm. And the vision was so strong. And even now, like, you know, small venue, I still bump into people who saw that show and it stays with them. Um, so, yeah, that's Cuckoo by Lisa Carroll is probably it. And, you know, it's so interesting hearing that because um, you mentioned this earlier halfway through the episode. You said, you know, with your queer identity that these parts are things I shouldn't hide. So I yeah. you probably, in a way, and I'm not trying to say that show going bad was valid, but all I'm mm. going going bad lit a fire. You went... 100%. And now look at you talking about that incredible show. And I, I'm not saying it had to be shit so that this happened... But I just think that lighting fire situation and then having you now go in that show because I went fully in and fit, so it said, fuck it, I'll just do it. And you've got people now coming to you saying how incredible it was and it clearly had such an impact on you as an artist and director. Completely. And it, and it made me, you know, I, I learned I'd rather say no than have something that isn't what I, what I want to see. Um, it's fun. all but true. In season three of Afternoon Delight, uh, season one, we looked at the pandemic and how it affected artists' work. Mm. Season two, we looked at gratitude. So we did what did 2020 teach people and what were they grateful for in 2021? Mm. Uh, hope. Yeah. I'd love to know. Everyone's shared so many examples. We've had bullying. We've had um, health-related issues. We've had people just say that hope always is a part of their life. But I would love to hear, was there one moment in your life that things weren't fucking good and, and you end, hope got you through it or what your thoughts and feelings on hope are? I think there, there was a moment I remember where I think I mentioned that like terrible year I had. Um, and my, yeah, I just realized that like I had this, I was walking along uh, Victoria Road in south, south side of Glasgow. Um, I think I was going to meet my friend Emily, who is this astounding woman who runs musical theatre department at Royal Scottish. And I, ha I remember having this feeling that like every, like, I can only describe it visually that as I'd been burnt down to just my spine. That's the feeling I had where I was like, every bit of me is gone. Like I am down to just the most inner core of me because I'd faced so much grief and sadness and um, pain at that point. And I can't overstate that. It was literally death, you know, like cancer, a breakup, being cheated on, you know, like everything, you name it. Um, my childhood home breaking up, that being sold so I, I thought god I'm right down to the very the very core of me like there's nothing easy or um there's you know not no comfort like it's just that just that inner rod and I remember thinking and I'm all right <laughs> like and I'm still here and if you've got the capacity to face that time that I went through and yet and I'm boiled down to nothing you know the boiled down to that just that thing that's left after you've been through the total shit of it you can do anything. Um, so weirdly, I, I often find that moments of opposition where at absolute rock bottom, I understood what it would mean to be like whole and full again. And I think something about opposites, you know, the law of opposition, like you have to know loss to know gain. You have to, you know, 
you have to understand hate to fully get love, you know. And that was one of those moments where I was like, I've been stripped of everything, um, but that has made me alive to the hope of regaining it at any moment um, and working for it and feeling whole again. So, yeah, it's this strange moment on a dark night in the middle of Glasgow where I was sort of looking up to the sky feeling totally alone and completely aware that life was still going on. A bus still went past me. The rain still started. You know, I met up with a friend the next day. Wow. Life keeps going. Life finds a way, you know. There's that end of Angels in America, which I always think about at certain moments where I'm like, more life, you know. <laughs> so two people now in three seasons of Afternoon Light have made me cry during an interview <laughs> the second. So you have got... <laughs> Running, but you can't see it. Fucking Gladys camera shit quality. <laughs> it's interesting. It strikes me on a personal level because I totally relate. Mm. Talked in season three of my own episode because I do an episode every season at the beginning that's about me. And I talked mm. about doing an interview about certain McKellen and feeling like, why am I existing? And it's funny you talk about this because... Right now I'm going through a sort of, I can't believe I'm actually still managing to do Afternoon Delight and work right now, but I am. That's a testament to my strength that yeah. that trauma physiological response from this time a year ago was when me and this toxic ex were maybe getting back together. And, mm. and I went, right, Taurus season's coming. I'm going to be upset because a year ago, loads of nice things have been happening. I, I know that you're similar to me that I think something nice is happening. Why? Like, What's going to go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> you know there's this cute guy texting me and I go what's wrong with him then like and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so interesting but I remember and it's the phrase when you said I'm still here and I want to talk about this and then we'll go on to the final question of the interview when I did Wasted Youth and I talked about Wasted Youth last night which was my first ever solo show that I'd done and it was part of the BBC documentary I did called George Six Five Years Live and I'd done a song from the Car Purple called I'm Here which is one of my favorite musical songs and it was I live, and it was one of the worst decisions I made as an artist, but one of the best, right, was I'd, throughout the whole show, it was a pre-recorded narrative, and I was just lip-syncing songs and then doing movement with this pre-recorded narrative, right? And my only one concept as an artist that I wanted to do was the only thing I would speak and say was that I had been raped. Mm. And obviously right there, but like, you know, and I'll do that at the beginning of the episode, but there was, that was the only thing I said because I'd never said it to more than four people. Mm. I thought, this is bold, this is raw. Months later, I thought, shouldn't have done this. This was really bad. <laughs> people in the audience might have been real upset. But I'd done, I'm here. And I just remember that the room was silent and I cried and I've never cried during up sync in my whole life apart from that song, In Floods. Mm. And hearing you say that, that's the thing of, it's not going well. Mm-hmm still here that's it the only thing you can rely on is change right so it's like something will shift I was talking to a friend about trauma who's gone through a hard time recently and we were saying like it does it, it's not always a good thing that it makes your capacity so big like you can take on a lot of shit but you know everything your muscles grow from it you know what I mean mm -hmm. and it's like you you become you do you are in some way kind of exceptional because you have to be because you survived a thing and your body's only ever trying to help you survive further and like live on because it's that thing it is that more life thing so that moment where you did that and that moment of bravery and processing in a kind of way is the thing that got you to the next day you know yeah. 
that's totally it. And before we get to the last question, something I will talk about, but I won't really go into further um, on the episode is I have been dealing with that sort of aspect of my life of in the behind the scenes going, stuff happened years ago, maybe I need to take this further. And mm. Instagram story, something's been going on in the arts for a while now that I'll tell you about privately that I need to actually, alongside nine other people, deal with professionally and take to someone. And mm. it's been such an interesting experience that when I put an Instagram story up where I didn't even give any information, but I had seven people message me afterwards and I thought, oh, wow. And I'd put that, I put to anyone that felt silenced, the change will happen if you can make it happen and you try. And mm. I, for me, managing to do that has helped other people. So I totally, totally mm. talking about what an incredible episode this has been. So intense, but in the best way possible, philosophical, living our Aquarius lives. <laughs> Is there anything you would like to promote or discuss before we finish with the last question? Um, I was thinking about that and I was like, obviously keep an eye out for the project that we've done. It's going to come out. Um, and uh, I'm working on a play called Constellations. It's going to the West End. So keep your eye out for that. But also I made a podcast piece called Dotus daughter of the United States with a playwright called Sarah Kozar and you can look that up right now it's extremely weird and it's about uh, her family and her family of Trump voters and it was made around about the election and the clash and the pain that that causes wow. so yeah have a look I'm intrigued I'm gonna go check it out tomorrow when I'm hungover from the musical show <laughs> Oh, what an incredible episode Debbie it's been so lovely having you I'm so glad we got to catch up after a two three week break um, I think we both probably needed it after the intense week we had filming. Um, we end every episode of Afternoon Delight with an inspiring quote, lyric, mantra, affirmation that you live by. Um, I would love for you to share your quote before we say goodbye for now. Um, I'm going to go with a quote from a poem called Summer Day by Mary Oliver, who's a queer poet. Um, and it's the last line and it's simply, tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Um, and whenever things get too grey, I just think there's only one wild and precious life. Here we go. And what would you do with your wild and precious life? Oh, live it like it was all meant for love, not fear. <laughs> oh, for moment number four. <laughs> we got it. We got the fourth. <laughs> Amy, it's been an absolute delight having you on Afternoon Delight. Thank you for being incredible and mentoring me the last few months. My pleasure. <laughs> wow. Was that not an absolute delightful treat? I uh, really loved listening back to this interview. We could talk all day, all night. After the interview, we did chat for about 25 minutes and then I realised I had five minutes to get on my wig and my outfit to stream the House of Liability show. Um, but it wouldn't be drag if someone wasn't late and we could just chat all the time when I mentioned at the beginning of Afternoon Delight I've got some personal stuff going on which is bad um, there is currently eight other artists including myself we are taking forward um, something to do with someone we'd worked with that had been really um, problematic years ago and Debbie was giving me a lot of advice actually about what to do and, and how I could go about it that's why I consider them such a great friend and mentor actually in the industry because I knew that when I told them, they didn't have judgment, they didn't have any reservation, they just said, well, X, Y, Z. And 
They are just an absolute delight when I say that. I mean it. Their work is incredible. I mean, imagine work in the royal court. I, I, I never thought I would even be doing a webinar for NTS, which I mentioned during it, um, let alone interviewing someone who's worked with the royal court. It's just incredible and being directed by them. My last thing I would add, actually, is that throughout this, I did not realise until doing this interview that Debbie themselves identifies as genderqueer, and I went, oh, wow. Um, so, Debbie, thank you for sharing parts of that and also your Catholic upbringing. I had no clue. And about your disability, you are just such an advocate and activist, and I'm here for it. And you're incredible, and I hope that we continue to create amazing work together and live our unapologetically Aquarius lives. Um, when I spoke at that webinar, I talked about trans and non-binary joining the arts, and I know for a fact the work I've done as a non-binary artist with Debbie, it's definitely brought me so much joy the last two months. Thank you so much for joining me on Afternoon Delight. It has been such an absolute pleasure bringing Debbie Hannon to the listeners. Um, next week, I've got Miss Peaches, drag queen from Dundee, and I've got Cameron Moore from Smut Slam talking about her work as an artist and Smut Slam and how they've managed to do online events. But until then... Stay safe and remember to breathe.